Good morning. Um, as uh, PJ pointed out, uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Casey, and I'm an in-covenant member here at Liberty Church. Um, I'm also a graduate of Liberty University, not officially associated with the church. Um, I'm a student of Heidelberg Theological Seminary, and I am training for the pastorate. So it was my joy, uh, an honest joy, a true joy, and honor to preach the very word of God to you this morning. I want to start off uh, by saying this. I am so glad that you are here. You could be anywhere this morning, perhaps feeding on avocado toast, (laughs) sipping mimosas, but you're not. You're here worshiping God, the sovereign creator of the universe. And don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying avocado toast and mimosas are morally wrong. In fact, they both are wonderful gifts from God that should be enjoyed with thanksgiving. However, they are no substitute for the very word of God. Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So I pray this morning you will feast on the very word of God. If this is your first time here, or if you haven't been here in a while, I want to quickly catch you up to speed at where we're at in our sermon series. Right now we are in the middle of a series called Rehearsing the Gospel, and in this sermon Uh, series, we are looking at the various elements of worship, uh, particularly here at Liberty Church, what we do in our liturgy every week. Um, So, so far, we've considered the call to worship, and if you're anything like my family, uh, nine times out of ten, you probably show up late and miss the call to worship. So, if you're wondering, like, what that looks like or what it is, the call to worship um, is the very first thing we do in our corporate time of gathering. It is God's announcement that goes out to his people, calling them to a time of holy convocation and holy gathering. You see, the elders of this church didn't get together one day and say, you know what, it'd be a good idea if we worshiped God. No. God determined that he should be worshiped. God determined that we should worship him. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 43 We read that God created created humanity for the sake of his own glory. God created all things for the sake of his glory. All things were created by God, through God, and for God. Uh, My brother, Nate White, said it so perfectly last Sunday in the call to worship. He said, God and his purpose remains the same, that he should be glorified. Not because he is a tyrannical ruler demanding it to be so. Simply God should be glorified because as the omnipotent, omniscient, loving, forgiving, uncaused cause of all that is caused, he is worthy of glory. Furthermore, Pastor Matt has done a wonderful job through this series emphasizing the fact that we as humans were designed by God to worship. In fact, this is so fundamental, it is so important that we get this. 
We are naturally predisposed worshipers by God's design. But under the influence of sin and our depravity, we turn our affections away from God and we worship created things rather than the creator himself. In Romans chapter 1, the apostle Paul said it this way. He said, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. As humans, we are so inclined to worship that in our sin, we have the propensity to make even avocado toast and mimosas the object of our worship. You may think that's a little far-fetched, but think of the Apostle Paul's words to the Philippian Christians when he was warning them about the people who walked away from the faith and now had become enemies of the cross. He accused those people of making their belly their God. And in contrast to that thought, think of what he says to the church in Corinth. He says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of of God. Worship is so much a part of what it means to be human that even something as simple as food can become a point of God-honoring worship or self-serving idolatry. So get this. God created you, and he created you to worship him. And so the call to worship goes out, and God's people respond. What's unique about God in comparison to idols is this. God is the living God, and thus he is the God who speaks. And so worship is designed by God to be dialogical. Don't get confused. I didn't say diabolical. I said dialogical. Worship is a dialogue. God speaks, and we respond. God calls us to worship, and we answer. And so one of the ways in which we respond to God in dialogical form is through singing. So in the third part of this series, Pastor Matt preached an amazing sermon on singing. And if you weren't here for that, if you missed it, I highly recommend going back and and listening to that online. And in that, he pointed out that there are many false narratives that are being propagated in the world market of ideologies and philosophies. And they are constantly vying for our attention and our buy-in. But in contrast to those false narratives, when we sing the songs of God, we are singing the narrative of God. When we gather together on Sunday morning, we sing the redemptive story of God. We sing about God and we sing about what God has done. And so when we draw near to God by answering the call to worship and as we sing about God, we are naturally made aware of our own sin in light of God's perfect holiness. So last week, John Robinson preached a sermon on confession and explained that when we as Christians sin against God, we must confess and repent of our sin. This week, we are, we are going to look at the assurance of pardon and what exactly is being said in that particular point of our liturgy. So if you have your Bible with you, please turn to 1 John chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible with you, 
Uh, please feel free to use one of the black hardcover Bibles near you. And if you're using a black hardcover Bible, the passage can be found on page 1021. So I'm going to read 1 John chapter 1 and then all the way through chapter 2, verse 6. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Please bow your head with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless the reading of your word and the proclamation of your word. And Father, I ask that this sermon would be a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit that we would look to Christ as our propitiation, that we would look to Christ as our assurance. We pray these things in his name. Amen. So in corporate worship, what we're doing right now, as we draw near to God by answering the call to worship, we become aware of our sin We confess our sins to God, and he responds in dialogical form through the power of his written word with an assurance of pardon. As we just read in in John chapter 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
The assurance of pardon is God's word spoken to us in response to our confession of sin. The assurance of pardon is a proclamation of what God has done for us and through us in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So draw your attention to chapter 2, verse 1 with me. The apostle says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. As we confess our sins, in the assurance of pardon, God proclaims Jesus Christ's intercession for us. The Apostle John tells us that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Hebrews chapter 9, 24 says this, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. As the old priests of the Old Testament would enter into the holy places of the temple, that's what is meant here by the phrase human hands, they did so as representatives of God's people. And as our great high priest, as our representative, Jesus Christ has entered heaven itself and is seated at the right hand of the Father advocating for us. In response to the confession of our sin, the assurance of pardon is a proclamation that Jesus is your advocate. Furthermore, in the assurance of pardon, God proclaims Jesus Christ's righteous substitution. The priests of the Old Testament would offer up a sacrifice as atonement for sin. On the cross, Jesus Christ offered up himself as our substitute in our place. Jesus suffered the judgment and curse we deserved. In Hebrews 10.10, the author says, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. For our sin against God, we deserve the wrath of God. But Christ took our place and suffered for us. The author of Hebrews continues in Hebrews 10.11-14. through 14, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified." The priests of the Old Testament had to offer continual sacrifice for sins. But Jesus, Jesus offered up himself one time. The blood of animals is not sufficient, but the blood of Jesus is sufficient to cleanse us from our sin for all time. In response to the confession of our sin, you and I need to hear the assurance of pardon as it is a proclamation that Jesus 
is our substitute. He is our advocate and he is our substitute. Look again to chapter 2, verse 1. The last sentence. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus is not only our advocate, he's not only our high priest, our representative, but he is given the title, the righteous. In the assurance of pardon, God proclaims Jesus Christ's righteousness. That title, righteous, is a validation of Christ's nature and thus a validation of his work on our behalf. Jesus lived a sinless life. Theologians talk about his sinlessness in terms of his impeccability. He could not sin. Simply stated, Jesus is without sin. And because he kept every precept of the law, his sacrifice is accepted by God on our behalf. In Romans 5.18, the Apostle Paul says this, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life. As the representative of the human race, Adam plunged all humanity into sin and depravity with one act of disobedience. As the representative of God's people and God's children, Jesus' act of righteousness on the cross has led to our justification and life. In response to the confession of our sin, you and I hear the assurance of pardon proclaiming that Jesus is our righteousness and he is the means of our acceptance and justification before God. Look at verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In the assurance of pardon, God proclaims Jesus Christ's propitiation of God's wrath. That word propitiation literally means to soak up. On the cross, Jesus took the wrath of God in our place. Like a sponge, Jesus soaked up God's wrath for us. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 5, says this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. In response to the confession of our sin, the assurance of pardon is a proclamation that Jesus is the propitiation of God's wrath. Jesus is the one who has soaked up the judgment and wrath we deserve. Furthermore, in the assurance of pardon, God proclaims Jesus Christ's expiation of our sin. On the day of atonement, the day in which the high priest would go before the Lord and offer sacrifice for sin of the nation, two goats were selected. One would be slaughtered as the atoning sacrifice for sin. And as we've seen, Jesus has done that. Jesus was slaughtered and sliced 
on the cross. The second goat was sent into the wilderness, representing the expiation of sin. Leviticus 16 says it this way, And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. The word expiation means to remove. Our sins were literally placed on Jesus. They were imputed to him in what is called the great exchange. God imputed our sins to Jesus and imputed his righteousness to us. In response to our confession of sin, the assurance of pardon is a proclamation that Jesus has taken away our sin. Look at chapter 2, verse 2 again. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In the assurance of pardon, God proclaims the magnificent extent and glorious degree of Jesus Christ's work on the cross. The last part of that sentence almost sounds like the Apostle John is a universalist. almost sounds like he believes that all people will be saved without exception. And thus, the Apostle John sounds contradictory to the rest of Scripture. Because after all, we know that Jesus did not die for the Old Testament wicked. Jesus did not go to the cross for Pharaoh. Jesus did not go to the cross for Sodom and Gomorrah. And we know that hell is real, and it is prepared for the wicked. So what does John mean by this statement? Let's say the New York Yankees are in a Game 7 World Series this year against the L.A. Dodgers. It's a tie game, bases loaded, two outs, and Aaron Judge steps up to the plate. You can imagine Yankee Stadium at this point would be rocking. It would be excitement, exhilaration. Imagine the first pitch is thrown, and Judge crushes the ball out of the park. A walk-off home run. Pandemonium might be a word we would use to describe the ensuing scene. Now let's say Mike Lupica, he's a sports writer for the New York Daily News, let's say he's in the stands that evening watching the game. The following morning he wakes up to write a story about the event he watched. He describes the scene and he says, at one point, as the ball came off of Judge's bat, everyone in the stadium was on their feet. Now, with that statement, do we expect Mike Lupica to be trying to tell us that every single person in the stadium was standing, including the handicap, including the people counting money from the concessions that evening? including the Dodgers fans in the crowd? Are we expecting that he is trying to give us a literal account? 
No, of course not. And we know this because he wouldn't be trying to capture a detailed list of everyone in the stadium. It's not his point for writing. Rather, he's trying to capture the magnitude of Aaron Judge's home run. He's trying to capture the magnitude and magnificence of what he witnessed. And so in this verse, we see the Apostle John doing the exact same thing. John is not trying to catalog a list of every person that Jesus died for. Instead, John is capturing for us the global implications of Jesus' work. He is capturing the magnitude of Jesus' work. He is making sure that we understand Jesus' work is not local and it is not tribal, but it is universal. John is offering a point of doxology in light of what Christ has done. Revelation 5.9 describes this heavenly scene. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed the people for God from every tribe, in language, in people, and nation. In response to the confession of our sin, the assurance of pardon is a proclamation that Jesus' work is gloriously magnificent and effectual. As you and I confess our sins on Sunday morning, as we wrestle through our own sinfulness. The assurance of pardon is God's proclamation assuring you that Christ has taken God's wrath for you. It is the proclamation that God is saying this work is effectual and it is applied to you. Because worship is dialogical, the assurance of pardon requires at least three responses from us. First, and primary response to the proclamation of our assurance is faith. Faith is the appropriate response to God's proclamation of Christ's work for us. When we hear the words of pardon pronounced over us, we should lay a hold of them in faith. When we hear the words to look up, we should look up to Christ in faith. I love the way John Piper uses the solas of the Reformation. Take a listen. He says, We are justified by God, by grace alone, on the basis of Christ's blood and righteousness alone, through the means or instrument of faith alone for the ultimate glory of God alone. So this morning, as you have heard the assurance of pardon spoken over you, to the glory of God, lay a hold of that assurance through faith. The second appropriate response to the assurance of pardon is repentance. The assurance of pardon should move us beyond confession and into active obedience. I want to make this clear. As sinners, we can't obey the moral law of God perfectly. Therefore, we can't be justified before God by our own obedience to the law. 
We are justified by Jesus' obedience to the law in our place as our substitute. However, it is not false to say that we are saved by works. Because we are saved by Jesus' works. And his works are applied to you and me by grace through faith in him. However, in light of that, if practical holiness in daily obedience, what I would call functional faith, if those things are not evident in your life, you have every reason to question whether or not you are in Christ. Listen to the Apostle John in in verses 3 and 5 of chapter 2. He says, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. It is the grace of God that leads us to repentance, and we must bear good fruit in keeping with repentance. And that's not to say that Christians do not sin, and that's not to say that we will never sin. If that's the case, then the assurance of pardon is futile. John chapter 2, verse 1, doesn't make any sense. Because he says, I write to you so that you do not sin, but if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. What the Apostle John is saying here is, if you are living a life full of sin, to use his words, if you are living in the darkness, but you say you have fellowship with the Father, you're a liar. You are self-deceived. You are not in the light. You're not being honest. And he says, the truth is not in you. So, this morning, lay a hold of the assurance of pardon through faith and live a life worthy of the gospel, marked by holiness and obedience. The third and and final response to the assurance of pardon is worship. Doxology is always the appropriate response to theology. As I quoted Nate earlier, uh, as he pointed out last week, we worship because God is worthy. So as we come into the presence of God and we answer the call to worship, as we see and experience the holiness of God and we are overwhelmed by our own sin, may we confess our sins and be assured that Jesus Christ is our advocate He is our representative. He is our high priest. He is our substitute. He has expiated our sin. He has soaked up the wrath of God for us. May we believe those things and live worthy of those things in worship. Bow your head in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the person of Jesus Christ. God, we are grateful for the confidence we can have, the assurance that is available to us in Jesus. There is no need for us to to wonder, has Jesus done these things? There's no necessity in fear and unbelief. Our great high priest is our advocate, 
Help us to lay a hold of these things this morning in faith. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.